Welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. This is episode number one. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is Dr. Austin Baraki. Uh, we're here to do evidence-based discussions about important medical topics uh, as they relate to training, fitness, and overall health. Um, so first I'll allow uh, Dr. Baraki to introduce himself uh, and then I'll do myself and we'll go over today's topic which is osteoarthritis. Yeah, excited to be here. So. I'm Austin Baraki. I'm um, from Virginia. Got my doctorate in medicine at Eastern Virginia Medical School. Pre- previous, uh, previously to that, I was a competitive swimmer for a very long time, including through the college level, and then uh, started lifting weights afterwards. So I didn't, because I didn't want to get fat. Found starting strength. Uh, since then, feel like I've gotten reasonably strong. Now compete uh, in powerlifting, and uh, am currently a an internal medicine resident at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. And, uh, yeah, that's where I am right now. Uh, and let the record show that Austin never got fat. Just never. Yeah. I'm arguably not even big. Uh, <laughs> arguably not even big. Uh, by, by Ripitoin standards, you are yeah. significantly I'm, underweight. I'm insectoid by Ripitoin standards. Insectoid. Insectoid. Yeah. Uh, so currently around 196, 197 pounds, 600 squat. Best bench 405, deadlift around 650, hopefully to break that deadlift in the next two weeks or so. Not that anybody's counting. Yeah. <laughs> anyone's counting. Um, so, yeah, I'll follow suit here. I'm uh, Jordan Feigenbaum, uh, originally born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. Also ended up going to Eastern Virginia Medical School for to get my MD. Prior to that, I got a Master's of Anatomy and Physiology from St. Louis University School of Medicine, um, a biology degree before that from Truman State University. Now I'm out on the West Coast in a family medicine residency at a very large program that I think I'm just going to not name it any longer because I don't know, you know, we listen to that other podcast, uh, Curbsiders sometimes, and they just never name their employer. (laughs) So I'm unsure if it's, yeah, exactly. Right. So maybe we'll have to come up with a code name or something, you know, I, I only think that good things can come from this. Uh, we're just we're both very we're both easily Googleable, however. So uh, yeah, know. that's true. All right, so I'm at UCLA, and uh, in any <laughs> in any event, I'm also joined by my two trophies uh, slash Dino pals, Tim and Tony. Um, I'm a competitive powerlifter. Uh, competitive. <laughs> uh, my best squat six forty. I benched four thirty and uh, deadlifted seven twenty five. Was back in two thousand fourteen. Since then, I've just been aspiring to my former greatness and uh, <laughs> <laughs> staving off atrophy. No, so I uh, uh, have been working back trying to get strong again, and uh, still by Ripitoin standards, am insectoid. Uh, I am not sure. Did he ever tell you a specific weight that you needed to be? Um, no. I know you're supposed to be 275. So I feel like if I'm 275, then you're got to be the same. Pretty much the same. (laughs) Pretty much the same, yeah. Yeah. Austin is also known as the likable Jordan, which I take offense to because I feel like if anybody plays it more nice on, uh, plays nicely on the internet, it's got to be me. Well, yeah. We'll see what we'll think on this podcast. (laughs) I placate a lot of people's biases. I'm like, oh, yeah, it may work. Mm. Well, yeah, one could make the argument that is probably your favorite phrase, and so everyone can find something to like when you make yeah. the argument that they, they agree with. There you go. The, maybe it. I'm the more likable Austin. <laughs> so, 
So the structure of how we'll do things effectively is we're picking a topic. Um, in general, the idea is that we've written an article about that recently and, or that, that is coming up on publication, um, either on the Starting Strength website or some other uh, media outlet. And then we'll talk about that topic, um, uh, stuff that may not have made it into the article, and go back and forth about it as it pertains to training and sort of uh, and medicine, kind of gel those two things together. Um, and then answer your questions. So this will be published on the barbellmedicine.com website um, and it'll be up on iTunes. So either of those places, if you want to leave reviews, comments, those would all be great. Um, I don't particularly care if we ever make it to a number one podcast. I just want to put good information out there. And, uh, you know, I don't think we can compete with the charlatans of the fitness industry because in fairness, I'm never going to wear a thong. Never going to happen. I don't have enough. I don't have enough time to shave down. All right, so let's start it out. Osteoarthritis, big topic. What is osteoarthritis, and how do you know if someone has it? Yeah. So this, uh, as as you mentioned, this uh, podcast is kind of inspired by an article that will be coming out on the Starting Strength website soon that I wrote about osteoarthritis uh, being a major topic that. Um, we deal with because, in general, we work with a lot of middle-aged and older trainees who come to us with achy, creaky, banged-up joints, and they tell us, I've got arthritis, and uh, they're afraid that moving around, squatting deep, moving under load, or their doctor told them uh, that they're bone-on-bone, and uh, therefore, they shouldn't do much of anything with their lives. So... um, it has a bunch of scary terms associated with it, degenerative joint disease, things like that, that make people feel like their joints are dying and it's inevitable and, you know, they can't do anything about it. Um, and it is technically a degenerative process, but there's a lot of interesting features about it um, in the sense that, you know, as I've talked about in previous discussions on back pain, the degree to which the physical kind of objectively um, – objective degeneration that you can see there on imaging or arthroscopy or whatever correlates with symptoms. Oh, well, so what's arthroscopy for our listeners at home? Arthroscopy is anything ending in scopy, like colonoscopy, endoscopy, anything like that, is putting a camera and looking at something or just visualizing it directly. I guess there's a few examples of that too. So sticking a camera inside a joint and looking in to see what things look like. Sometimes surgeons will offer arthroscopic surgery. Um, where they go in with that and they'll look around and they'll do some snipping and filing and shaving and things like that. And maybe we'll talk about those topics a little bit later. So arthritis is basically this kind of joint degeneration, uh, characterized by, um, by stiffness, by aching pain, um, oftentimes use related pain. Sometimes you can get swelling of the joints. Um, it's classically considered to be wear and tear type condition. It's classically considered to be non-inflammatory, um, which is, not particularly true um and so kind of we can hash out the details of some of that stuff a little bit later and it goes on the article will go into a lot more detail as well now, so very yeah now i think you did a pretty good overview there of osteoarthritis and then kind of um you know how would you go about diagnosing it um people will often confuse they'll still they'll just say arthritis which unfortunately you know being the people who is not that's not specific enough so are there multiple types of arth- arthritis uh, <laughs> or, uh, you know, and if so, kind of what would be your, if you had to quickly diagnose somebody osteoarthritis versus uh, another type of arthritis, so there's rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, what would be your sort of quick and dirty? Because someone just says they have arthritis, then the first question that we would ask is, well, uh, what kind, when was it diagnosed, who told you that? Yep. 
Yeah, so the vast majority of the time people are talking about osteoarthritis. And so really in classical teaching, the types of arthritides are divided into inflammatory and non-inflammatory types. And how do we determine that? Well, typically you would need to stick a tiny needle into someone's knee joint, pull out a little bit of fluid and test it. And so those tests include a number of different things, but a major one would include a cell count study. You look at the number of inflammatory cells in there, particularly white blood cells. And the number of white blood cells present correlates with the amount of cellular inflammation present in the joint. And so autoimmune conditions or uh, other highly inflammatory arthritis like rheumatoid arthritis, acute gout being another one, psoriatic arthritis, a few others, those are going to have relatively higher uh, higher cell counts in those, and that's going to reflect a lot of cellular uh, inflammatory processes going on, whereas osteoarthritis or plain old normal joints have much lower amounts of uh, those cells inside and cellular inflammation. And so that's kind of typically how those are classified in terms of the classical teaching, in terms of the biochemical studies that we do in labs. Yep. If I'm seeing a patient and I want to look at their joints and try to decide, it's kind of a different picture. So a lot of times there's a, there's a history, uh, obviously, that's involved, that's important. And so um, you kind of take the history of how their pain manifests, how long it lasts, if they have pain in the morning, does it last for a very brief amount of time, and it kind of gets better as they warm their joints up, does it get worse throughout the day, do they get significant swelling, is it red, hot, tent? do they have tender joints, like are their knuckles tender, as you might classically see in active synovitis of rheumatoid arthritis, the active infl inflammatory process going on there, right. and versus a more cold-looking joint, which is not as, uh, not as actively inflamed from like an external perspective. They might have a little bit of swelling, they might have some fluid on the joint, but it's not typically going to be as tender to the touch, or um, it's not necessarily going to be as swollen or as red or as warm as some of the acute inflammatory processes. Well, so look, all you uh, potential medical professionals out there listening to this, that was the quick and dirty uh, how to uh, your differential diagnosis for uh, joint pain <laughs> when, when, you're, when you think about arthritis, not, you know, non-traumatic causes of joint pain. So that's uh, commit that to memory. <laughs> You'll be re-exposed to it many, many times. And, and uh, so that was that was excellent. So. Let, let's move on here. So we'll assume it's osteoarthritis, which again is classically referred to as non-inflammatory arthritis, which we both know is not true given the, that there are inflammatory markers certainly that are there to start uh, and the disease process and also that continue to manifest uh, the disease process and signal a lot of the, the end result. Yeah, is molecular it's molecular inflammation more so than cellular inflammation, and that's not what we were typically able to measure in the past. Exactly. So now that we can identify certain interleukins, cytokines, uh, dipokines, all these other things, all these substances, we can we sort of know that wow, these are signaling inflammation, even though we don't see white blood cells in there. So yeah. Um, in any event, uh, would you say, or sorry, if you if you had to, to characterize uh, how fr how common osteoarthritis is. Uh, what would you, what would you tell people? Yeah, no. So luckily I prepared for this. I was, I, I was like, my goal, I, I want a few things from this. I want one question that stumps Austin. So I already, I already got that We're like 10 minutes in, uh, and I want us to simultaneously be drinking on camera. Cheers. Cheers. Is apple juice. Uh, so yeah, the incidence, um, in the United States is just a little over, it depends on what age demographic that you're looking at. But in general, all comers, you're looking at a little, uh, a little over a third of the population is going to experience osteoarthritis, uh, which is, a, I mean, that's a lot, a huge, huge disease burden. 
I don't have a number for the amount of money we spend on it per year, but it affects females more than more than men in yeah. general. Uh, predispositions include having a high BMI, being obese, having uh, uh, depressive symptoms, um, you know, physical inactivity, all sorts of other things will predispose you to osteoarthritis. But the and aging again, these are like the bigger for sure. Yeah. So those are all huge, huge sort of risk factors. Those would include your increase your odds of getting osteoarthritis. Um, and again, it's very, very common. And so I guess, you know, from my perspective, and I don't know if, you know, your perspective is the same. It's not so much like diagnosing the thing I think is important to make sure you're not missing anything else that you would treat differently. Um, but once you have a diagnosed case, of osteoarthritis, my main thing is management. So what are you gonna do about it? How are you gonna make it better? And let's not waste a lot of time. So um, briefly, diagnostic things, we talk about a Womax score, uh, which is not diagnostic, but it is how you would maybe classify somebody's pain if you wanted an objective sort of scale. So Womax is what the, uh, it's- uh, Western Ontario, McMaster. Yeah. yeah. Say what's the whole what's the whole acronym? Western Ontario, McMaster, something. Yeah index <laughs> I don't yeah know. it's a it's a score it's a validated score that can give you a number basically you can use to identify you know how bad somebody's function is and that's what's used in a lot of studies so if the womax pain score is improved then they have better pain indices there's also a couple other scores for like yeah. it's pain stiffness and physical function are the three that's like sub scores in within it. it's like a proprietary deal but those are three sub scores and so anybody who wants to be able to read uh read the literature on osteoarthritis and kind of, yeah, the, the literature, capital capital L, and understand what it's talking about, um, needs to kind of at least be familiar with that with that topic. Yeah, you don't necessarily need to use it in day-to-day -day practice like all the time, but it's there. Yeah, there's a couple other uh, indexes out there, uh, like a, it's like Reynolds Articular Index uh, or something, uh, Richie Art Articular Index rather, and then uh, a, the Kellogg uh, score, these are all x-rays. Kelgren Lawrence is the scoring for the system. knee. For the knee. Yeah. And, you know, x ray scoring is kind of whatever. But to me, at least, you know, I can look at it and I can say, looks horrible. You're, again, bone on bone, whatever. But uh, the correlation is not as great as we always, ex Wait, always so expect. So it's possible to be bone on bone? That's a, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. Okay. Um, so, and then the other thing, you know, and you addressed this pretty well. So your article that's, that's going to come out talks, uh, you, fo you focus on the knee. Um, you know, just use an example, you know, at least that's your first example. Sure. What sort of correlation do you see between diagnostic criteria or diagnostic evidence of osteoarthritis? Uh, so things telling you that the person has osteoarthritis, like x-ray or and, and symptoms and how bad, how bad their actual presentation is, how bad their disease process is. Yeah, I think if you are to, and, and I personally am a huge fan of studies like this, but if you're to take the kind of studies or look at a series of, of knee x-rays and try to guess strip solely based on the imaging, if you had to say maybe pinpoint an estimate for a Womax score for that patient or estimate just, you know, uh, no pain, moderate, mild, severe pain um, that patient's going to have, I think you're going to do a pretty poor job of it just based on x-ray appearance. Um, another one that I find to be interesting is um, how much we focus on when we move patients' knees around and feel crepitus in their knees. We feel crepitation. It's like, oh, you know, that's some arthritis going on in there. And it's like, you know, I'm sitting here and I've got crepitus in both knees. I've never had pain. I'm doing fine. I don't have osteoarthritis. So, um, you know, so that's a, that's another one of those like kind of classical physical findings that we look for. That if I was to look up the data on the sensitivity and specificity and likelihood ratios and all that kind of stuff as it relates to 
ultimate diagnosis of osteoarthritis are probably pretty poor. Right. Um, so mainly it comes from mainly it comes from the history that you get from the patient. And if you want to do X-rays, which is you know always going to ultimately end up being done for a patient who fails initial management at least and is going to ultimately end up getting um, knee surgery, or if you're wanting to rule out certain other causes, um, they're going to end up getting an X-ray. And then going down the imaging uh, rabbit hole can both uh, can can create a whole bunch of a new set of problems for patients too. Yeah. So what you're saying is that, you know, the, the evidence on x-ray does not correlate necessarily to the physical exam and the yeah. physical exam findings don't necessarily, and neither of those necessarily uh, correlate to symptoms. Yeah. yeah. E effectively, none of, neither of those anyway would affect your management other than once you've diagnosed that this is osteoarthritis and not something else that you would treat differently. Right. They can certainly be helpful to help rule things out or make the diagnosis of alternative causes of the non-traumatic joint pain. Sure. But um, in terms of contributing to the diagnosis of OA itself, they're not going to be all that helpful. Yeah. Yep. And that's, that's kind of been my, that thing, you know, it's like you have this really nasty looking x-ray, but the person's got no pain. So what do you do with that? Who cares? Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, it's uh, my opinion that treating the x-ray or the chart or the number mm -hmm. effectively is just a disservice to the, to the patient. Sure. Um, You're not going to refer someone with a nasty x-ray and no pain to a, to a surgeon to get a knee arthroplasty. That'd be obviously ludicrous, but which, which they'll still do, which they'll still do yeah. because you're bone on bone. <laughs> right. And, and so, and yeah, that's probably the other thing. One of the hardest things to wrap their, your brain around is that if you know, the X, the X-ray may suggest, uh, or, you know, even if you go more sophisticated imaging, uh, MRI, Oh, there's the meniscus is torn or there's a huge, you know, uh, mm -hmm. a lesion in the knee. So that's just an injury to the knee tissues. Oh, they need a um, you know, meniscus repair. Right. And it's like, uh, well, most of the time, most, most of the time, probably not. Yeah. yeah. And, and the knee arthroscopy, most of the time, probably not. And, you know, orthopedic surgeons are obviously going to have a bias and say, well, you know, sometimes you should. Yeah. Sir, sometimes, you, sometimes you definitely should. If it's acute injury that's causing mechanical symptoms in someone who's like an athlete or something like that. Yeah. I, would, I mean, if it was me, I would definitely want it. Sure. But if I had plain old osteoarthritis and then an incidental, incidentally found meniscal tear or something, yeah. Even the, even the official... Uh, orthopedic surgery uh, clinical practice guidelines on it say don't do these arthroscopic procedures whether it's meniscectomy debridements all that kind of stuff don't do it yeah but how do you think and, and so yeah and you and I both listened to that same podcast talking about you know when the evidence-based recommendations come out there's still the people who hang on there's like the overlap like all right let's not do this anymore and then we're gonna sure. yeah. the late doctors I suppose yeah later doctors so you have this like sort of overlap where you're still doing all these inappropriate procedures and they just hang on for 10 years yeah, and the thing is that with these even with these inappropriate procedures, because it is a an invasive, a very dramatic intervention, there's a massive amount of a placebo effect out of it, which is what is shown with these sham surgeries. So people come out of it and they feel great, and they're like, "Why, you know, that was I'm I'm so glad I got that surgery done." For example, and then you know, six months or a year down the line, their outcomes are no different from the guy next door who didn't get the surgery done. Yeah. So so what Dr. Baraki is saying is that if you take two groups of people um, with knee pain that are they're equivalent. And uh, you give one of them the surgery, right? And then you give another one a sham surgery, which is effectively they take them to the OR, they make the same incisions in the knee, they put them under the anesthesia, whatever, and then, but they don't actually do the surgery, that those two people will have equivalent sort of improvements in pain and at long-term outcomes are the same, which, you know, suggests that the placebo effect is very large and very real. Now, is that, you know, just poking the skin? Is that what's causing it? Or, or is this a, you know, a, on a psychological level? And in your previous article to 
the osteoarthritis one and the pain one, you know, when you talk about the biopsychosocial component, you know, mod, model of, of pain and disease would certainly support that there's a psychiatric component to, to this. Yeah. And you can call it psychiatric. You can call it neurologic because some people take offense to it being called psychiatric. You can, you know, whatever the mechanism is, but the deal is, and this applies to a lot of other interventions and I'll try not to go off on a tirade here, but these kinds of very dramatic interventions, the more kind of theatrics there are involved in doing the intervention, the more likely it is to have a massive placebo effect. And that includes obviously surgery being the biggest of these, the most dramatic theatric type intervention you can do for these sort of things. But it comes all the way down to much more basic things. It comes down to doing a simple joint injection in the office. That is a dramatic intervention to a patient when they watch you draw up the steroid or the lidocaine and inject it in their knee and you know that's a dramatic intervention and they're more likely to feel way better afterwards yep. uh, same thing with acupuncture that's a very dramatic theatric thing that's a whole nother deal that we can talk about yeah Maybe. no I, I, I yeah it, the main <laughs> thing to work it's a yeah it's a complicated response to any intervention and I think you would be in agreement that the more uh, patient provider contact there is and the more dramatic the intervention is, the more likely that there is a supratentorial interaction. Yeah, and, it's, and, it, and it has also to do with their kind of coming in to get the intervention, how much they believe that it's going to work. Absolutely. What are your expectations? If they have high expectations, if they, if they heard that like their favorite NFL player got this procedure done on his knee, he got synvisc in both knees, and the next Sunday he was out on the field, all of a sudden you buy into it. Um, if you're, if you're the kind of person who buys into like super, um, holistic and natural kind of things, if the, if the, if the person's offering you, for example, uh, PRP injections and they say, oh, we're taking your own platelets and putting it back. It's super natural. Sure. You have all these reasons to buy into something more and more. And that's just jumping that placebo effect higher and higher. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. And, and on, on the, to play devil's advocate, or as I like to refer to it, the ENTP, because it's, yeah. it sounds nicer. Um, if it works, it works. And, and so you, you know, it, let's say you think that most, uh, interventions, which we're about to go through for osteoarthritis, uh, generally don't have terribly good outcomes outside of a few, then, you know, and you might, but you don't have access to that. All right. So you're, you're, uh, a GP working in a rural area, but you don't know about training. You don't know about nutritional interventions. You don't have a good referral system to refer to other, other specialists. So you think, well, you know what? I can get a lot of mileage out of telling the, you know, telling my patients, oh, this is, you know, what Kobe Bryant had, or this, you know, you, you well, basically, effectively, you're trying to maximize the placebo effect to ultimately yeah. maximize optimize outcomes. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I don't know if I have a problem with that overall, such yeah. that as you're not, we're not lying. So, yeah, I think, I think part of the perspective comes from some of the data I looked up for the article, and I mentioned it to you, um, that I wrote as an example, the hyaluronic acid injections or synvisc injections, which just the Medicare population alone in, I think it was either, I think it was 2014, it was $300 million worth $300 of this. million. Dollars. Uh, and so are we happy paying $300 million for a placebo? Oh, that's, that's I'm, eh. I'm certainly not. I'm yeah. certainly not. Uh, but I think that's that's that is a more complicated issue because yeah. you know then you start well why are we paying that for the Medicare population population um, yeah. you know especially with the evidence being so poor which is a nice segue into <laughs> treatments for osteoarthritis so you have a defined case of osteoarthritis you've seen your doctors to rule out any other case 
any other cause of your joint pain. Um, and I'll first let me preface this next section that the American Rheumatology Association has multiple different guidelines for each joint. And you can go down that rabbit hole and say, oh, for hand osteoarthritis, hip, knee osteoarthritis, there's slightly different recommendations. Um, but we're going to try to kind of just summarize generally. So let's, do, let's talk about pharmacology first. Yeah. So, so medications, of course, that's going to be addressed in any standard, uh, standard appointment you have nowadays. And uh, oftentimes people will start with Tylenol or acetaminophen, paracetamol for anyone listening overseas, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and and, and uh, it's when taken at recommended doses, it's a super benign medication, very low side effect profile, very low risk, again, when taken at recommended doses. But uh, at the same time, the data shows it to have pretty minimal efficacy for helping um, pain and osteoarthritis. Yeah. Uh, barely better than placebo most of the time right. um, for, for Tylenol. And so the next step up from that typically uh, to a slightly higher risk medication, but also slightly higher effectiveness would be an oral uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. These include medications like ibuprofen, naproxen, um, meloxicam, all those other ones um, in, that, in that class. But I really like ibuprofen. I don't like Motrin that much. So what do I do about that? Yeah, Motrin doesn't work for me. I only take <laughs> the, the yep. running joke, and you know, I, I shouldn't laugh about this because you know it, it is difficult to to know some of these things, but they're the same. So you that's... just have to smile and nod. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. But that could, that's right into the placebo. That, but you know, you know. Yeah. They, sure. And and so these medications admittedly have a higher risk profile uh, compared to the Tylenol. You know, even when taken in recommended dose ranges. Because uh, because of some of the systems that they affect and the changes that happen in those systems as folks get older, so NSAIDs in older people, in particular, who are the population that we're talking about with osteoarthritis, tend to have more issues with uh, progressive decline in kidney function, mm -hmm. uh, and they often tend to have other medical problems that might affect their gastrointestinal tract and things like that that make them prone to bleeds. Yeah, um, among among many other side effects that can come from these. The, yeah, even the American Rheumatology Association or Society recommends the only topical NSAIDs for yeah. these people. So that would be like a, uh, 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 what is the, uh, the Voltaren gel or something like that. But, yeah. but again, we're talking about sort of minimally effective sort of pharm pharmacology. And I think the effect sizes are pretty low when you go look at the data. They're, they're pretty small compared to placebo. Um, so I think you and I would both be in agreement you're saying, you know, it's reasonable to try. Like when you and I are in the clinic and if you have to precept with somebody and you're like, look, I don't want to do this, but I know <laughs> I'm going to have to. Because, yeah, because, have to give you an option. Yeah, because so, you, you know, you and I would have a much different treatment algorithm if you and I were practicing solo versus having a precept uh, or with people you're not going to get to do what you want them to do. So, yeah, you know that you have to tell them to take NSAIDs or Tylenol, and, but, but neither of us expect them to work. Yeah. And, yeah. The, and the other thing I'll say finally before moving on from this is that we're not talking about taking one Tylenol. Like this is up to three grams, four grams of Tylenol in a day, which is the max dose uh, for people under the age of 65. Scheduled around the clock. Yeah. Every day. And the, <laughs> the, the compliance rates of getting people to take Tylenol four times a day, I mean, is, is effectively you know, zero. You know, yeah. you're just, yeah. I couldn't do it. Well, right. So that's the that's thing. Um, so, so this is not, I'm going to take... 650 here and then 650 later on no this yep. is a scheduled somebody's making you take it at gunpoint yeah um, so. so basically tylenol is crap NSAIDs 
work for work for some people. The effect size is uh, is is uh, in, in in terms of clinical significance is debatable and is variable. I would say between people probably, sure. maybe that variation comes from an amount of a placebo effect. Topical NSAIDs, as you mentioned, are another option, and that's great choice to give people an option of something to do if they're not able to take the NSAIDs orally. But that's three times a day rubbing you down with, with yeah. and it's so, yeah, oh, okay, so we'll go on. Next, we'll have to level up in therapy. The, the topicals, the oral stuff didn't work. What do we go next? Yeah, so typically you'll get offered a joint injection at this point. A so joint it, injection, Doc? That sounds awesome. Yeah, put, on, give me that. Put the medicine in right where it hurts. So they'll draw up some. Uh, they'll draw up a corticosteroid like uh, like trimcinolone, for example. They'll draw it up together with some lidocaine, all in one syringe. It'll be nice milky white fluid there in the syringe. When he says draw it up, he means put it in a needle. Sorry. Well, <laughs> Too and, much and, and, I understand. Sure. Uh, this is a shout out to Dr. Britton from Eastern Virginia Medical School, who really hammered home that everything should be plain, be plainly explained. Yeah, and very family yeah. medicine of you. There you go. So about our feelings. They'll, they'll pull up, draw up, whatever language you want to use to get the medicine up into a syringe, clean your knee up, put spray some numbing medication on it, and then uh, inject inject that medication right into your joint, and then you'll go skipping out of the office feeling awesome. They might even do it in both knees at once, and they'll be usually offer those usually about every three to four months. Sure. Uh, and they'll you know and and so that's that's the next option. Sure. The data on these things seems to show that they tend to help. For maybe the first week, maybe the fir- maybe the first two weeks, mm-hmm. uh, but not a whole lot of effect beyond that. Yeah. Uh, and 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 again, a lot of the effect that we see by this much more dramatic intervention compared to taking Tylenol, which probably nobody thinks is super dramatic or you know particularly awesome intervention, I is more. That, Doc. Yeah, yeah, didn't work for me. Is more likely to have um, a higher component of placebo effect. Yeah, and, and I think you know additionally you go further down that rabbit hole looking at the data. So even if you uh, uh, concede that sure it'll work for that acutely in that first few weeks, maybe even up to a month. Uh, you, there is a significant, there's a few significant risks with joint injection, particularly with the steroid. Um, you do have a higher risk of localized, theoretically, the infection, although prevalence is low, it can yeah. happen. Skin discoloration and then additionally joint, uh, sorry, tendon uh, uh, degeneration um, at a later date. Now, again, these are m- more rare then you would really want to worry about, but to say that it's zero risk would be incorrect as well. Yeah. So. And, and again, you think about the fact that the benefit typically, if it's going to be a week or two, and they're going to offer it to you once every three to four months. Yeah, that's it's yeah. A, yeah it's a cumulative sort of sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so, but what about hyaluronic acid? Yeah. So that one has a pretty interesting theory behind it, right? Because the joint fluid that's naturally in your knee is a mix of hyaluronic acid. There's another protein called lubricin in there that kind of synergizes with it to help make that fluid uh, lubricate your joint better, promote better joint gliding across those cartilage surfaces at the ends of your bones. And so the idea is that if we inject some of this hyaluronic acid substance into your knee, it's going to help to improve the viscosity of it, the viscosity being the thickness of the fluid, relatively speaking, like water versus milk versus syrup in terms of thickness. And that'll help to uh, improve basically that joint sliding. It'll reduce friction, hoping that reducing friction will reduce pain. You're just going to lube the joint. Yeah, it's, lube the joint. It's like putting KY jelly into your joint. Yeah, that's the idea. It sounds awesome. And it comes in the form of injection. Nice, dramatic procedure done in the office, right? Um, unfortunately, doesn't work as good. Um, doesn't even have the kind of uh, doesn't even have the kind of data that the steroid and and uh, anesthetic injections have, where they work for maybe a week or two, 
on patients. Um, the data on this is even worse. It's minimal minimal to no effect at all, and a minimal effect that has been seen has been estimated to be about 80% placebo based on kind of the statistical magic that these some of these people can do. Um, and, and, and one interesting tidbit I found just based on the pharmacology of it all is that this stuff is cleared from your joint in very short amount of time. Yeah, the half-life of hyaluronic acid is super, super short. Yeah, so let's say they're going to offer it to you. You know, they, they usually offer these, uh, these kind of injections uh, once a week for like three weeks in a row, something something like that oftentimes, and they'll bring you back in like six months, maybe do it again. And, and, and then uh, and then it's gone if it's gone in like an hour or even the, the new kind of uh, engineered versions of it that have a half-life more like 17, 18, 20 hours, something like that. So it doesn't last. Like it's like it's implausible that it would work yeah. from a true from a true pathologic standpoint because but of that. because it's probably cash based you know unless you're Medicaid but you get to keep coming back and it's a repeat billing and, and I'm not and I don't want to you know sound like I'm coming across very crass to people who are offering these treatment uh, to treatments to patients uh, but I will also be frank at the same time I don't yeah. the evidence is that they don't work okay. Uh, and so by offering them, you must tell that to your patient that, hey, there's a chance this may not work and we'll have to increase therapy later. Not mm-hmm. to say, hey, you know what, let's do this. It's got a really good shot of working. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, effectively that's fraud. Yeah, it's dishonest and it's not a long-term solution for the problem that's going on. Exactly. And so, and, and you know, we're highly trained people and well-educated, uh, uh, you know, so, so it'd be hard to say that we're stupid <laughs> you know, we just don't know. And yep. it would also be hard to reconcile that you're offering a treatment that doesn't have good data supporting it. And in fact has good data saying it's not very good. <laughs> but you've seen it work though. I've seen it work. My patient told me it worked for them. Yeah. So, I mean, but that's hard to argue with, you know, it, well, it's hard to argue with from an emotional standpoint, but that sort of medical reversal, you know, that's the same people, the same people who are going to push DES on their, you know, OBGYN patients and, and, and stuff like that, thalidomide, and be like, well, I saw it work. It's like, yeah, but unfortunately, it's got some, you know, it's not so great. Yeah. So, in any event, uh, that's an aside. We'll move on. Okay, so look, I did, I tried the Tylenol, didn't work. Tried the ibuprofen and the Motrin, neither of those worked for me. <laughs> tried the steroid injection, hyaluronic acid, didn't work. Where do we go next? Yeah, so traditionally, if you're seeing a primary care provider at this point, you're going to end up with a referral to a surgeon. But why uh, am I going to ortho? You just told me earlier the surgery doesn't really do anything. Well, yeah. So they're going to have taken x-rays and they're going to see how bad your knee is and they're going to tell you how bad your knee is on the x-ray and that's going to confirm to you how bad your knee is. It's going to hurt worse. They're going to send you to a surgeon to get evaluated and then hopefully not anymore or at least not very often anymore. The surgeon will take a look and they'll hopefully not offer you an arthroscopic intervention for your knee. Um, but if it's actually legitimately severe symptoms, refractory to all these treatments, not getting better with anything that we've done so far, mm-hmm. um, then you'll, you're going to be offered a knee replacement, providing that you're you know, a good surgical candidate. You don't have tons of other medical problems and things like that. You're gonna, probably going to be offered with a knee replacement in either one or both knees. Yeah. So, and people do well in general, broadly speaking, 10,000 foot with a joint replacement, people do well. Yes. If their surgical complications are low, if they're a good candidate coming in, and how are you a good candidate coming in? You don't smoke, you're active, you're strong otherwise. Don't have diabetes. You're right, exactly. right. All these sort of things. But um, they can work with it. <laughs> yeah, the better, the, more, the better you are going in, the even better you're going to become, uh, be coming out. And people do very well with them. And, you know, the thing you hear most often is, why didn't I do this sooner? Yeah. The, the deal is, though, so, and I, I, you, may, you may have something else to add, but 
people with joint pain of the osteoarthritic variety are the folks who come in, they say, yeah, I've got you know, achy joints. They see the PMD, the primary medical uh, uh, doctor wants, and they say, yeah, well, let's try, NSA, you know, let's try Motrin or ibuprofen, uh, or here's some Voltaren gel. Uh, they see them once, and then they don't come back because it didn't work, and they're like, eh, well, I guess I'm just getting old. And, yeah. and in reality, what you would want to do in this situation is schedule, have pretty close follow-up and just and, and you're just working down that pathway. All right, yeah. I tried this, I tried this, I tried this, that, and all these things need to be evidence-based. I wouldn't try the hyaluronic acid, steroid injections. I probably, I probably wouldn't try because I know that they're not really going to help um, unless I really think this person is a, this is a, <laughs> a, a, a which is fine. Uh, yeah. and, and, and then you make the referral. Um, more of our naturopathic folks would say, well, what about fish oil? And I, to my, my response would be, what about fish oil? And, you know, you're gonna, if you go and you look for good data on fish oil as it pertains to osteoarthritis, you're not going to find it. You find stuff on rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease of different etiology. Okay. Uh, you find stuff on osteoarthritis in dogs. It's true. And a lot of veterinary med uh, uh, sort of journals that decreases their use of ibuprofen. And then you find some curious studies on uh, the new this new medication. It's vitamin it's vitamin E fish oil and uh, uh, and one other uh, vitamin. I don't know what it was. Yeah, it's like a prantic, uh, sorry, preantic or something. I forget the name of it exactly. But anyway, it came out originally with this data showing it like this effect size was huge, like 0.5, which means it's like a half standard deviation of but better than placebo, which you don't see. You just don't see it, you know, especially for a nutraceutical. Right. And so overall, but then you start looking at these meta-analyses and they just, they tend to come back and say fish oil doesn't really make a difference uh, in, um, in osteoarthritis. Overall, that's been my kind of findings in the literature in, in general. You'll see stuff like, oh, like fish oil combined with glucosamine chondroitin sulfate works a little bit better than glucosamine chondroitin sulfate alone. And it's like, all right, so one, uh, not... <laughs> <laughs> How well does glucosamine chondroitin sulfate work? Exactly right. So, uh, you know, and so you spoke about this in your article, which uh, we're definitely going to put in the show notes uh, once it comes up. So we'll probably have to come go back and edit it. But the glucosamine chondroitin sulfate, uh, and you can comment on this as well, it wasn't so much, it was, not, if you put the sulfate, the sulfate molecule by itself, showed, seemed to be the most efficacious actually yeah. part of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And in Australia, that's, it's a schedule, that's, uh, that's prescription only. You can't actually get that. You can only get the other the other uh, uh, type of glucosamine. Yeah, so, so glucosamine sulfate has actually some evidence that it does something. And then you take glucos glucosamine hydrochloride, and it doesn't do anything. Doesn't so do yeah. what does that you know makes makes you think a little sulfate. bit? And then the chondroitin doesn't. I mean, I, yeah, the chondroitin I don't buy does much of anything. No, but what about what about the MSM man? Yeah. Well. So that yeah, we, we have some it, evidence it, that the sulfate kind of works. Again, it's it, not, this isn't like revolutionary stuff. The uh, stuff's been studied for twenty five years. Yeah. If it had a very clinically significant effect, it seems like it should have come out by now. Yeah. So that, that's a, that's the that's the thing. You know, people want to want to think that glucosamine works, right? You have the old timers tell tell you that it works, or you know, I just imagine this crotchety naked man in the gym, just you know. <laughs> Back in my day, we took glucosamine, yeah. <laughs> and, and and you know the the deal is that nothing good has come out about it that's been really convincing. So you know, all right. So there's that. Especially um, when you look at effect sizes, I'll add. When you look at effect size in particular, it's like you know people will tout studies that say this works, 
but how well sweet, it works about as much as Tylenol. Cool. Yeah, right. And we just told you, but anyway, so we're not, we're not trying to say that none of this stuff will help you. We're just kind of giving you the expectations that, all right, we're going to try this and hope for the best. And if it doesn't work, well, we need to do, we need to do something different. Yep. Um, that's the same thing. So superstitious, uh, also known as cystus quadrangularis is a tree bark. Uh, used in this is used in uh, Eastern medicine. Uh, in fact, I had a client who was training with a very high-level coach. who's very, very popular in the uh, the the CrossFits. Uh, mm. Who was like, take this, take the super cystis. This is great. I happen to own part of the company. <laughs> the The issue is when you look at the data. There again is not. There's evidence that shows that it doesn't work, and there's no evidence showing it does work. So. So that's basically the worst case scenario. Like yeah. the best case, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The best case scenario you could have is is no evidence to show that it doesn't work, all right? And and and, and you know some evidence that shows that eh, it's not inferior to not do, to a placebo. Sure. So anyway, so cystis quadrangularis would not recommend. Glucosamine chondroitin would not recommend. If you have legitimate osteoarthritis, you and I would both say, uh, for initial management. Um, you need to, you should, you may start with anti-inflammatories. Yeah. Uh, you can then try maybe one steroid injection to see if you get this robust benefit. Yes. And if you don't see market improvement from that, then you're, you're either one, one of two different things needs to happen. One, you need to go see the surgeon to see if you're a good candidate for a joint replacement. All right. Or two, you need to take this neck, the rest of this podcast into, <laughs> in, in, into consideration. And I think this is how, where you and I would actually both spend most of our time as far as counseling people on osteoarthritis. So assuming so, we get them to get them to do this. Yeah. So this is an optimal situation. Optimal situation is Dr. Baraki and I were in practice. We've got the clinic in front. We've got the fully outfitted gym in the back. All right. With and, and interestingly, interest, interesting part about this gym, there are no machines. And it's not because you and I think machine people who use machines are stupid or whatever. You and I both know that from an economic standpoint, we don't want to spend $5,000 on a machine that does one thing when we can both be creative enough to come up with other stuff. Sure. Uh, in, in addition to the fact that, like, why do we need that? Because we can do other things. Yeah. All right. So we've got a bunch of cages, a bunch of racks, platforms bars, weights, the whole deal. And so you sit down with Sally. She's a 65 year old female. She says, my knees hurt. And you say, all right, let's, let's try NSAIDs. Uh, we're going to do ibuprofen scheduled here. Or if she's, oh, you know, uh, 65, you may actually start with Tylenol. And then you're going to say what with respect to training. So I'm going to need to know what her baseline level of physical activity is like, what kind of things can she do? What kind of things can't, she, does she think she can't do, uh, figure out what her, day-to-day activities are like you know so that so that i know a starting point to take her up sure so sally sally's otherwise healthy no past medical history you know she's been in a couple car accidents went to the ed but nothing you know from that she's never had any surgeries she takes some high blood pressure medication and a statin because the doctor she used to see told her that you know she should be on that for the rest of her life and maybe they should put it in the water and then uh but she has no history of diabetes. She's uh, she walks, you know, pretty regularly. She used to do, uh, uh, you know, some aerobics back in the '80s. But <laughs> since then, she's she's mostly just been walking outside. Uh, yeah. So, so what do you what do you uh, what do you do with her? 
I'd like to see at least immediately in the clinic standpoint, and I'd actually do this with patients fairly routinely. I ask this, I want to see in terms of a quick, very quick, and not, I don't know how validated it is, functional screen, tell them to get up out of their chair without using their arms. Yes. So I can see what they can do. And that's basically seeing, can they, can I, if I wanted to get them to start training, could I have them start with a box squat? Would that be reasonable? Because I can't expect some of these older, frail, or multiple comorbidities patients to be able to take a body weight squat below parallel all the time. And when Austin says comorbidities, he's talking about multiple disease processes. So some, that's the person with high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, you know, but otherwise healthy. Uh, that's, and, and, we, and we joke about that because that's, our, that's, our, that's your standard patient, panel patient, right? So, you know, high blood pressure, uh, hyper... The veterans, man, the veterans, they have everything, but they're otherwise healthy. So. Otherwise healthy. So, and so, yeah, so basically Austin is talking about a... Uh, more sophisticated timed up and go test. So we, they use this in geriat geriatrics population um, effectively yeah. to see are they strong enough to stand up? And, and it's, it's effectively your squat screen, right? Yeah. So I think you and I have both been in agreement. We're, we want to put her under barbell. Yeah. We want to get her training. And, and she may not be able to squat on her own because she, she may yeah. be de too deconditioned. And in that case, you got two options. You can box squat or, or you can do a leg press if you have that in, in your gym. So leg right. press would be okay to have in the gym for sure. So so you're saying that if an osteoarthritic person comes into your to your clinic, you want to put them under, you want to get them training. Yes, yes, I would like to get them training, and uh, you know this is probably going to be uh, considered to be heretical by some listeners who might not have looked at the evidence showing that exercise helps with these patients. Absolutely. In addition, this evidence also seems to show that higher intensity exercise is not harmful to these patients. Absolutely. And we know from our routine coaching practice that higher intensity exercise has innumerable other benefits outside of just increases in one RM strength, for example. And those other benefits can be useful, particularly patients in this population, for her hypertension, for her diabetes, for her osteopenia, for her psychopenia, for all these other things as well. Yeah. So we're killing innumerable birds with, with one stone, which is great, and we can make her arthritis feel better if we get her exercising. Yeah, from a medical economy standpoint, like <laughs> the answer to what do you do to optimize somebody's health for the least cost is easy. Yeah, it's strength training, and and, and the, so training has the biggest return on investment when it comes to hypertension management. Like that's going to drop your your blood pressure effectively the most. Uh, glucose tolerance. If you want if you want to improve somebody's insulin sensitivity, glucose tolerance, uh, training of legitimately any kind, particularly of a high intensity variety, is going to help um, to improve somebody's quality of life, their ability to, to do activities of their daily life. It's that's that's what's going to help. So, so you're saying, and again, if you're correct, if you look at the data, you say that the people with the highest physical activity levels, that's like their recreational stuff, have the lowest Womax scores, the lowest pain scores for osteoarthritis. So yes. And interestingly, so when, you, when we look at also some of the mechanisms of osteoarthritis that we didn't talk about before, but you can think about the knee, for example, and all the structures around it, the muscles, the ligaments, the supporting structures, menisci, the bursae, all these other things that are considered to be joint protectors. They help to protect the joint itself when it's being used as the knee gets used all the time, all day, every day, sure. or some patients not so much, I suppose. But um, so as these joint protectors fail, for example, if the muscles get weak, if the ligaments get ruptured, if the menisci get torn, things like that, it might, it might affect the mechanics in day-to-day -day use, predispose the joint to injury, and injury trauma further predisposed to de developing osteoarthritis. And, and so the one that we can affect the most through training is going to be the muscular weakness and the integrity of the kind of the, the muscular tendinous structures, 
the ligamentous structures by applying stress to them because from stress they can re recover and adapt. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, it's interesting to see some of these recommendations that say, you know, the best form of exercise for this condition would be light aerobic activity. And it's like, so we know it's activity, it's movement, it might be considered exercise in some, in some situations, and yes, exercise will help, yep. but it doesn't, there is no aerobic deficiency in the joint protective structures right. that need to be modified. Right. Whereas the VO2 max in your leg has to go up. Right. Right. Yeah. So we can modify the strength efficiency and get all the extra fancy benefits of exercise along the way too. That's exactly right. So, so the strength efficiency is the problem. It's not is your, a yeah. Um, so yeah, the Cochrane review that just came, that came out recently on osteoarthritis was an update uh, effectively said that land-based exercise got the biggest, one of the biggest effect sizes that you can do. I like that they defined it as land-based exercise. So no one gets confused and says water aerobics. Right. No, doesn't do anything. <laughs> no, and in fact, again, if you like, so you and I are certainly biased. Like, let's, uh, sorry, we should have said this at the beginning, like competing interests and biases. So, um, yeah, my bias is toward barbell training. Uh, you know, I do own a company that specializes in, uh, uh, yeah. you know, uh, promoting resistance training to the, to the public. But, but we didn't make this up. The American Rheumatology Society says, hey, water-based training is not indicated. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and so when people recommend that, it's just your litmus test, so they're not up on the data, and they have no idea how to train. Right. You may as well go into space to exercise where there's no gravity. And so they say, but it's better than nothing. And my response is, no, it's not, because there's no opportunity cost to doing nothing. Okay? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> the opportunity cost to going somewhere to do water aerobics, to spend money on doing water aerobics, and to think, to be under the delusion that you're doing something useful, it, that, that's the opportunity cost, which is not there with doing nothing. So, my opinion, if it's water aerobics or nothing, pick nothing. <laughs> well, yeah. Pick some money at least, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the one thing we didn't mention um, here, so, so just to be clear, the TLDR of this whole thing, right, is if you have osteoarthritis, the best thing that you can do for yourself is start training, all right? And, and the most effective way to do that, we know, is going to be strength training, and you're going to need to work with a skilled professional to do this correctly if you've never done it yourself. And I think you and I have both experienced that even people who are highly motivated, who seek out the correct materials, it's very rare that they're able to take all that in and then have the idea, I'm gonna do this by myself and I can do it correctly. Right, and nail it right off the bat, it's uncommon, for sure. Exactly, so, so just cut the, cut the learning curve off and see a, a good coach. Uh, the good coach is not gonna be working at 24 hour fitness, uh, because the good coaches have might have moved on from that. Okay, um, the thing we haven't commented on is PRP, packed. Oh, sorry, platelet rich. Platelet rich plasma. plasma. I was like, I just had a transfusa patient before I came home, so I was like, wait. Yeah. <laughs> you think about platelets? Yeah, yeah. I was like, wait. She was thrombocytopenic too. So yeah, yeah. hypothetically, hypothetically, this is uh, so. Any event, PRP. So PRP meets all those criteria that I mentioned earlier. It's dramatic intervention. They take some of your plasma, they spin it down, they take some of these fancy growth factors and things like that. So it has this kind of like theoretical plausibility to you. They'll inject it back into you wherever something hurts. It has that aspect of it. It's all natural. Athletes use it. Big, strong, famous people use it. Um, and then we do some controlled trials. We compare it to placebo injections, to sham and uh, it doesn't really stand up to the test nearly as well. 
Um, it, you know, I'm, I'm just, again, when it comes down to the actual effect size that we see, even in some of the mildly positive studies that we get out of it, the effect sizes are just not particularly impressive when it comes to PRP, at least in my standpoint. No, I, I, I'm in agreement. I'm in agreement. Yeah. It, it, it's not that it can't. I, so I, I place that somewhere. It's like, it's like if here's hyaluronic acid and here's like steroid injections, I'm putting PRP like a little bit above that. And, and I think it's, I think it's on the reasonable cusp, right? Sure. It's, it's the plausibility. So, yeah, so I would never do a hyaluronic acid injection in somebody. I would do a steroid injection in somebody, and I would consider a PRP injection, but it wouldn't be my go-to. My go-to would be barbell training. Yeah. And, and I optimistically think that most people do not recommend that first line or even second line because they don't have access to the correct resources. Sure. And some people, and, and, and to be clear, not everyone, you know, some people have just uncontrolled symptoms and asking them to get under a bar on their first day is not necessarily uh, not necessarily going to be well received by all patients and some sure. some people say that's crazy you know so there's some people where you just have to get some degree of symptom control before you can get them training to get the more definitive treatment done and so you know there's there, there's people that scream as you know scream at us being you know doctors as being pill pushers and stuff like that but sometimes you have to do something like that, get their symptoms under control that way, and then get them to the more definitive management, which, of course, takes an understanding of what that definitive management should look like. But that's kind of what we're recommending here. Yeah. So, yeah. I, and I think you and I would both agree also that pain push, pain medication prescription is a very complicated topic. So we should probably we should probably stay away from that. We should just, shelf that one for tonight. Yeah, yeah I agree. Austin's, so Austin's so mad at me right now because he actually sleeps. And he's like, bro, I'm now at seven hours and 50 minutes. Like, why are you doing this to me? And I'm thinking, dude, I'm going to get like five hours tonight. I'm so excited. All right. So let's, uh, I'll briefly cover this, the dietary components yeah. of uh, uh, osteoarthritis. So if you go delve into the literature, so again, this is going to be mostly evidence-based, there is a good bit of data sh suggesting that one of the bigger risk factors to developing osteoarthritis, in addition to age, is going to be uh, being overweight, obese. Right, BMI uh, as it goes up is going to increase your odds ratio of developing um, osteoarthritis. And the interesting thing is, we always thought this was wearing just wear and tear on the joints, right? Uh, but but as you so eloquently po po uh, pointed out in your article, that it was uh, you know the hand <laughs> was still kind of up too, yeah. Yeah, so a non-weight bearing joint effectively shows very high levels of of osteoarthritis. Uh, you know, it's more so um, when when uh, when you look at the BMI uh, as it goes up. Uh, interestingly, so new theories in nutritional strategies uh, suggest that adipokines, so these are cytokines, these are inflammatory mediators released from uh, body fat, uh, effectively have a significant in impact on osteoarthritis. Uh, additionally, that leptin itself actually has a both locally and global effect on osteoarthritis development. And so leptin is the satiety hormone that is released in higher and higher amounts in people who are overweight. Uh, and so as you weigh more, you have more body fat, your leptin levels go up, uh, but they are resistant effectively to that leptin is, is the current thinking. But if, they, if you inject leptin into somebody's joint, they almost immediately develop osteoarthritis. Is yeah. kind of, yeah, so it's interesting <laughs> from this sort of standpoint. So why does weight loss improve osteoarthritis? So that's if you're overweight, uh, improving uh, sorry, uh, losing that weight will actually, or losing weight will improve your, your sort of pain scores and, and your, your symptoms. Um, and so it sh we should not go without saying that weight loss is definitely a, a you know, potential strategy. Um, and <laughs> it, it, a lot of that may have to do to the adipokine sort of, sort of 
sort of scenario there. Just and if you go through, and if you if you get to the weight loss through some of the methods that we're talking about, if you get there by training, strength training, things like that, the things that you know, the adipokines, the 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 maladaptive kind of um, uh, molecular inflammatory process that's going on can comes down as you lose weight, but you also get, and this is stuff that Sully brought to our attention before, all the myokines from like this guy Peterson's Peterson's research, yep. myokines, hormones, and and kind of molecular signaling things that come out of skeletal muscle. From or as a result of contraction and strength training, have massive systemic anti-inflammatory properties, yeah. and so that can help to tamp down the molecular inflammation that's coming from being, you know, very, having very high body fat percent, things like that. Exactly. So, so not only with training and then this nutritional, you know, approach uh, to to lose weight if you're if you're very overweight, you're getting redu reduction in the pro-inflammatory signal, but also uh, another signal to decrease inflammation overall from yeah. from training. So, which kind of you know is our my one of part of my rebuttal to oh well I can't exercise because I have too much pain from my osteoarthritis. So yeah. that's part of part of that. Uh, other things you can see uh, are that inflammatory foods, uh, which you and I kind of both snicker at and just yeah. what is yeah. an inflammatory food? And, and that's a great question. You know, so yeah. we see uh, things that cause a really really marked hyperglycemia postprandial or hyperlipemia, so high amounts of sugar or fat in the bloodstream after a meal. And almost universally in non-sick um, individuals, so people who don't have diabetes, people who don't have like a hypertriglyceridemia that's familial, or hypercholesterolemia that's familial, um, you see these in people who are eating super big meals, which again, make this kind of ties in. Like if you're eating huge, huge meals very, very frequently, guess what? You're at risk for <laughs> developing, you know, to, to, to gain weight. Uh, also, uh, there is an inverse relationship between fiber intake and Womax scores in people with already diagnosed osteoarthritis. So effectively, yeah, so I was actually talking to a, another uh, medical colleague of mine. He uh, is actually about to uh, do a presentation to the NFL Players Association on how to control osteoarthritis. Uh, and so, you know, one of his things, so he actually likes PRP. And, and again, I think, I think it's reasonable, uh, especially if you're thinking about uh, initial interventions. Um, in addition to training, he's like, you need to get these people strong. And he, I think he, the quote was, get them strong AF. And I was like, hey, I, I agree. Uh, I, I concur, doctor. I concur, doctor. All right, so, so you have that. And then additionally, you can uh, uh, make them eat a higher fiber diet. So uh, those would be sort of nutritional strategies. Fish oil, we don't really have good data on, like I said before. Um, and then you know other like other supplementation just hasn't really been shown to be super super effective, uh, but certainly being overweight if you're overweight and you have osteoarthritis, uh, losing weight and starting exercise are going to be your two biggest things. Yeah, and then a few things that I commented on in the article in terms of starting exercise if you're in that situation and you have pain. Interestingly, simple things like knee sleeves actually have legitimate evidence showing that they help people's yeah. pain. How they do so is totally you know questionable. Probably a neurologic mechanism, maybe improving. It's kind of like if you have this osteoarthritis as a result of some of these joint protectors failing, putting a knee sleeve on might restore some of your proprioceptive sense. It might help you protect the joint a little more, feel a little bit more safe, and your pain might go down, as an example. Absolutely. Who knows? But yeah, put some knee sleeves on if you try to squat. Yeah, and so you know that brings up a, uh, another just excellent little just point here. So we, you and I have both been involved in social media discussions lately. Well, not, I mean, this was a while ago. People were like, oh, if you're not a competitive athlete, you should take off your shoes and your knee yeah. sleeves and your wrist. Well, right, your face says the whole thing. 
Your face does the whole thing. So the deal is, you know, people frown will say, oh, don't use your lifters all the time or don't use your wraps all the time or don't use your belt all the time. And and the, the issue is we're not using these as a crutch. This isn't a crutch to train. This is a tool to be able to maximize the return on investment for our time in the gym. Why can you, why is using a belt good? One, it, it prevents you from having a back injury, allows you to use more weight, which is allowing you to apply more stress in a given period of time. Ultimately, what, what we're trying to do. Okay, what using weightlifting shoes? It's not making up for a deficiency that you need to spend three months trying to work on without getting a benefit, right? You just use the shoes, right? Yeah. And three months is a conservative estimate. Like if if your ankles are tight, please regale me with how you're going to stretch your way out of that. Okay, or build up your arches naturally or some bullshit like that. Exactly. Yeah. The deal is you have to train, and anything that doesn't revolve around training is is BS. So don't ruin my PG thirteen rating. Oh my bad! All right, oh, sorry. I'll, have to, like, I'll have to go back and edit that out. All right, so the minute uh, one, 60, 60 <laughs> minutes and sixteen to eighteen seconds, I gotta yeah. go back and take that out. All right, so so there's that. So I think you and I both say you need to train. Knee sleeves are, are uh, an option. You should have weightlifting shoes. If you have osteoarthritis, you need to see somebody who you can either coach you correctly or refer you to somebody who can. All right, they're unlikely to be in your 24-hour fitness. Unless you happen to live in St. Louis, Missouri, you can go see Cody Miller, who is, for some strange reason, still working in a commercial gym. <laughs> yeah, like, if you're in St. Louis and you're not training with him, uh, and you're on the uh, you're on the west side, or that Justin Thacker down uh, on the east side, you're, you're messing up. Anybody else you're training with is a mistake. Uh, Ryan Benson's also in Illinois. All right, so anyway, that's enough shout-outs for today. We're going to go into our lightning round. All right, so I'm gonna ask you a question, you're gonna answer, and then I'll answer the same question. Here we go. Tom the Bomb, 9999, that's four nines, on Instagram says, how do you guys find the time? I am with my mother in the hospital room. She has a pneumonia. Every doctor and resident looks like they've never uh, saw a barbell. You guys are great, I always learn from you. How do you find the time? Gotta make the time. I get home, I have a home gym, which I set up because I wanted to be able to train when I wanted to train. After work, get home, get it done, go to bed. Uh, I have a slightly more nuanced answer in that I don't think I'm actually making any conscious choices here to prioritize, uh, just that this is sort of my modus operandi. I, uh, I do love training, um, it's very high on my priority list, and so I make other things dissipate to, to allow myself time for that. And if you're asking me, do I have the time to train? The answer to that is no, but everything else is get sacrificed for me to train. I would have a more successful business, better interpersonal relationships, and I would sleep more if I didn't train. <laughs> That's not an option, though. That's so. not an option. Those things, uh, well, maybe when I was... What are you, you going to not train? Come on. What are you going to do? Not, not train. <laughs> not an option. Uh, all right. Who, who is Turk and who is JD? Also, is there a Todd? So I'm not a Scrubs guy. I know those characters are on Scrubs, but I'm not a Scrubs guy, man. I am so upset right now. Okay, so look, here's the deal. First, Turk is our beautifully tanned friend, uh, to be 100% completely correct. He's a surgeon, you know, but he's got some deep feels, like that deep down, you know, but he's kind of a bro. And I honestly feel like I fit that sort of scenario, you know situation. I thought that I was JD earlier because I'm a little neurotic, but honestly, you know, I think that Austin's a cool, calculated, you know, killer. And so I would actually say that uh, Austin is uh, JD and I am the Turk. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's where we're gonna go. I don't know a Todd. Uh, maybe maybe my friend Jason Dick Herber, he's our orth- local ortho resident, or Schneider, e- either one of those, or Chewy. Chewy can be Todd. Chewy yeah, can be Todd. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Chewy, you are the Todd. All right, here we go. So, uh, MNK Shuffield asks, does barbell training benefit cardiovascular health? Stop. Anaerobic, aerobic pathways confuse me as to which is preferred. I don't get the last part of which is preferred because the answer to that is yes. Um, I think he probably means which one is dominant in strength training. And, like, you know, that's not really a question. Obviously, if we're training the way we train, low reps, heavy weights, it's going to be more of an anaerobic type stimulus. But everything is an overlap. There's not an on off switch for aerobic versus anaerobic. Otherwise, your heart would stop when you're training and you just use strictly anaerobic, you know, processes that don't use don't use any oxygen delivery, but your heart's still pumping, pumping blood, your blood pressure goes up when you're training, your blood vessels respond to that, they adapt to that, they get stronger, they can tolerate these pressures better, your heart has to work against that afterload in a beneficial, not a maladaptive fashion as it does like in heart failure, for example. Uh, So yes, you get benefit in both pathways. These pressures. Uh, Yeah, and so to add on to that, uh, Austin, uh, Dr. Baraki is exactly correct. there's evidence, uh, significant evidence suggesting that when you train, resistance training only will increase uh, people's VO2 max, which is a marker, albeit not the end-all be-all for aerobic capacity. Uh, it'll show that it will increase, and this is especially true if they are detrained, deconditioned, or have a low resting VO2 max. And uh, if you're wondering, people generally stratify into four different categories with VO2 max. There are people with high levels of VO2 max and no training who respond extremely well to training. Those are the folks who end up going to the Olympics, professional athletes. Uh, there are people with uh, high levels of VO2 max who respond poorly to training. There are people with low levels of VO2 max who are good responders to training. There are people who are low level of VO2 max who don't respond very well to training. And so somewhere within that gradient, that's where everyone falls. And in general, strength training will increase your VO2 max because there are cardiovascular demands in resistance training, as yeah. Austin so eloquently stated. Sorry. Back. eloquently is my favorite like pseudo medical word it's like oh in this eloquent study and i think like the researchers there, like writing the paper in their underwear are like somebody's gonna say eloquent later i think the best the best medical word when it comes to research i think is equipoise wait what medical equipoise look it up we'll talk about it next time if you're not familiar with it you have you haven't reading enough literature if you don't know what that is man you're not reading the literature all right here we go next one from Mr. Bradshaw, who's out in Virginia Beach. Shout out to my homies back in BB. Also Austin's family. Yeah. <laughs> he asks, I've been having a good amount of shoulder pain when I bench. Uh, it seems to be coming from the front delts. Delts. Uh, it's not as bad for incline pressing and overhead, but it won't go away. Any suggestions to train around this? So I'll let you jump in on this first, and then I'll put on my coaching hat. Uh, yeah, so you know when we have aches and pains, things like that, we always want to try to find some way to train around it. It sounds like the best thing you've found is pressing overhead and incline benching, so I would suggest that you maybe try doing more of that. Um, if you can't find a flat bench style that doesn't make the pain go away, then you probably need to take a little break from flat benching for a little while. Um, you also need to try to figure out what is actually going on. You don't seem to have a diagnosis. You don't know, is this a tendon issue? Is this a bony issue? Are you having like labral pain on both shoulders? is something seriously messed up in there that is really not going to get better even if you back off from it for a little bit and try something else. Whereas if it's a tendon issue, you know, I recently had something like this that I worked around with some some tempo work, some eccentrics, things like that, and stuff got better. So work around it to the extent that you can, but you should try to nail down 
at least something of a diagnosis to figure out what structure or structures are actually affected so that you can decide, is this something that needs surgery? Is this something that I can actually, that, that will heal with time? Um, yeah, that's basically my answer. Yeah, the only kind of addition slash counter to that, my, my thing is if you can press overhead and you can incline and you can squat and deadlift, my gestalt is that it's unlikely that you have a, you know, <laughs> recalcitrant, like surgical, you know, yeah. urgent, urgent thing you need to take care of. But I am in agreement that finding ways that effectively don't hurt. And, and I think this is just a more nuanced take on, hey, if that hurts, don't do it. But we're going yeah. down the road of, yeah, if that doesn't hurt, if it doesn't hurt, uh, let's find, or if that does hurt, let's find other ways. Yeah. So things that I've noticed, the people who generally close grip bench tend to uh, run into some shoulder pain as well. You know, people think, oh, close grip bench is great on the shoulders. I don't have pain. It's like, yeah, that works for a little bit until it doesn't. And the idea is, yeah, you don't have a big uh, moment arm lap, you know, in this plane, the sagittal plane, but you do have a big moment arm uh, in this way from the shoulder to the bar. So sometimes switching to a wider grip bench, taking some weight off the bar will allow you to do that. With you, I know you did some tempo work as far as focusing on the eccentric, which is if it's a tendonitis, uh, tendinopathy of really of any kind, it's going to respond decently well to. Um, so different grips, different range of motions. There's a lot of different things you can do to see what works, and I think exploring those uh, are useful. So Jake, guess who you're going to get an email from? Okay, <laughs> let's move on. This person has a unpronounceable name, so I'm not going to try. He says, how does one grow a manly stash? And don't worry, Austin, I'll take this over because you've never experienced this. So I'm entitled to an opinion on the matter. <laughs> so let me tell you about my father. My father, Leonard Feigenbaum, all right, uh, is a great man. He's living. He's my hero. He's living in St. Peter's these days. Uh, he's pulled 315, I think, for a set of five because status post knee replacement because he's a savage. Uh <laughs> And rides the dirt bikes. Like, you know, the guy's in his 60s. All right, he's killing it. So the deal is, how do you grow a stash? One, you just have to be genetically predisposed to doing this. I mean, you think about all the great mustaches of our time. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. The, the, the deal is, I don't really know how, what to tell you other than if you don't have it and you're an adult male, like, you're just never going to happen. It's never going to happen for you. The yeah. things to not do, don't grow a chin strap. Don't do that. If you've had a chin strap and you still have it and it's 2017, shave it. Shave it. It's not working. It's not working. If you have a goatee, consider removing it. <laughs> and also, just to define this, a goatee is from here down. If it goes all the way around your mouth, it is called a Van Dyke. Uh, thank you, Sir Ripito, for informing me on the various forms <laughs> of facial hair that a man can have. Yeah, I learned. Great. You got to learn. Bruce, right. Tra Bruce Trout. This is actually an interesting question. All right. Bruce Trout says, yeah. I can now rep fives on my deadlifts with all of the plates that I own. First world problems. <laughs> Which I could do best. Yeah, exact same. Uh, and I can't afford to buy more right now. How might I change my programming? All the other lifts are fine right now. I've been doing the novice linear progression since September and continue to move up pretty well. So I don't need to completely switch my programming. But I'm not sure how to attack my deadlifts. What would you recommend? And I'm going to make the caveat that the answer is not buy more plates. Yeah. Of course, given <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be the rips answer to this question. Buy more <laughs> Just buy more plates. plates. That's how others do. Yeah. So the idea is that. In, in terms of pure weight on the bar that you have uh, for doing sets of five, that is as much stress as you can give yourself right now. And you need to find a way to make that stress higher if you want to continue adapting. Exactly. So you have tons of different options on how to make that stress higher, right? You can do more volume. You can do some higher rep sets. You can increase the range of motion. You can do deficits. If I don't know how advanced you are, if this is like 225 and that's all the plates you have and that's how many you can do for five, well, we're in kind of a different situation. I'm not going to start 
you know, throwing bands on the bar and doing all kinds of fancy stuff like that. Uh, in that case, you just need to buy some more plates. But if we're talking like, you know, you have you have 405 on the bar or something and you just, you know, don't have 50 bucks to go get some used plates, then, you know, in that situation, yeah, you need to find a very pick a training variable and make it make it go up. You can decrease you can uh, you can in increase like your training density. That would be another option. All kind of, there's there's just so many options. I'll let Jordan Fun training density. I'll, I'll let you pick one that you like the best. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement, and I think my my general feeling would be to just do more volume. So yeah. just do three sets of five on a deadlift, and then work your way up. The deal is though, you should probably just steal more plates. And Craigslist is so robust with plates, you can get more. But yeah. if you were in jail and that was all you had, and you're writing me from jail. Like you should rethink what got you in the jail. You can find used plates for 50, 60 cents a pound sometimes, you know? It's yeah. A lot not, of people are just giving them away and don't want to take them with them. Yep. People give away their 35s. Go buy some 35s that nobody wants because yeah, I don't want A bunch of communist plates. I'm going to guess he's got like four bumpers and like that's all that can fit on the bar. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, JTC from Minnesota asks, I'm curious about basic barbell lifts, squat, pranch, squat press, bench press, and deadlift. Are the effects positive or negative on ankylosing spondylitis? Uh, my wife and other members of her family are diagnosed with it. Ooh, yeah, that's BL good. 27. Obviously, we have no data on this to say um, in terms of what the outcomes are going to be on it. Uh, I would want to. I, I would qualify this by saying I'd like to know what the severity of the ankylosing spondylitis is that they have, because end stage ankylosing spondylitis is basically like fusion of the lower spine to where they're going to have. I mean, this is like a true mobility problem. <laughs> this is something that even if they wanted to do mobility work, they couldn't do because they get fusion all the way down there. And that's going to affect some of the that, – that could potentially affect some of the things that they do with the barbell lifts. But I've, I've actually coached two people who had ankylosing spondylitis. Um, one of them was uh, fairly long-term. He was had well-controlled disease. He had already finished some immunosuppressives in the past um, and was just kind of on like a, a low-dose, like a maintenance regimen. He was doing fine. He had no issues with training. He did great. Yeah, so so I think you know overall, there's a lot of like front end information that you'd want to get just to have like a sort of clinical picture, but yeah. you wouldn't change anything. You'd still train, and you'd yeah. just find like yep, this is the limit, not the limit necessarily of weight, but maybe a volume tolerance or a frequency or a range of motion or anything like that. Uh, quick aside. I did train a spine surgeon for a little bit. He had a laminectomy, L4 to S1. Imagine my trepidation training a spine surgeon how to low bar back squat, you know, status post laminectomy, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in his 60s, he works up to the high 200s for sets of five. So his biggest thing was deadlifting, honestly. We couldn't deadlift from the floor on a regular basis. We had to pull from the rack. All right, Renee Mathis asks, if arthritis limits uh, shoulder mobility, making a low bar squat difficult, how would you structure the training? Yeah, so I'd like to know for sure that you have a an arthritic process that is physically limiting your range of motion. Like, are you physically unable to get the bar into place because you have a bunch of bone spurs, or is this something that you actually can do, like Paul Horn's kind of squat stretch and work your way down there over time? If not, just high bar, safety squat bar, just find another way to squat and squat. It's fine. Yeah, I think without a diagnosis, an official diagnosis, which is, again, why, why it's important if you, you know, have symptoms of OA or you think you have OA, which is shorthand for osteoarthritis, that having that medical workup is necessary. Uh, yep. That way you're not either missing something that you would change management with uh, 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 or make sure you're adequately treated otherwise. So, yep. yeah. Uh, and, I, and I will take this opportunity to say that if you cannot get into the correct position for the low bar squat, you should high bar. Yeah. And it's fine. The internet just exploded. Yep. All right, here we go. 
Uh, last question, Chris Lips. I think it's Chris Lip. Chris K Lip. Chris Lip says, "Would a person with chondromalacia be more prone to developing osteoarthritis in the future versus someone with chondromalacia?" And I'm gonna steal this from you first. All right. <laughs> I have no idea, and, and no one has any idea. Yes. No one has really any idea. Anything you're gonna find on the internet, on PubMed or a Cochrane Review or anything like that, uh, is going to say. Uh, it's going to be theoretical at best. Effectively, yeah. it's going to say someone with chondromalacia is more prone to developing osteoarthritis, potentially. But we don't know. Yeah, and my answer to this is going to be it doesn't matter. Uh, so first, let me say, <laughs> what is, what is, first of all, what is chondromalacia? Chondromalacia, anything malacia at the end refers to like a softening. Yeah. You can have that in a bunch of different places in the brain, in the trachea. Lots of different places can have malacia. Brain uh, malacia. So, so chondromalacia specifically refers to like a softening or like a wearing down of the underside of the kneecap. Um, it's oftentimes correlated with what we call patellofemoral pain syndrome. Uh, it turns out it's actually not that well correlated with that syndrome. Uh, it's something that, I mean, I probably just from feeling, because as I mentioned before, I have some crepitus in my knees, no pain. But I bet if someone looked on the underside of my kneecap, there'd probably be some something funky there that they could call chondromalacia. So it's poorly correlated with, uh, with, with patellofemoral pain, which is different from arthritis. But, okay, so if you have chondromalacia and it makes you more prone to developing osteoarthritis in the future, what are you going to do? Not train? Hey, man makes an excellent point. You, yeah, you, you have to find a way to train. Yeah. And, that's, and that's for anybody. Legitimately, any question about a medical condition is you have to find a way to train. It may not be squat, bench, deadlift, press, and that's it. Yeah. But you have to find a way to train because if you don't, you're just hurrying up that decline. Yeah. Highway to death, basically. Yeah. So chondromalacia doesn't really matter. In uh, my not to be confused with Highway to Hell, Great Song by ACDC. Yeah. All right. So, hey, that wraps up the first yeah. episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I've kept Dr. Baraki up way past his bedtime. <laughs> He's going to yeah, text me tomorrow. He's going to be very first. upset with me. Yeah, I got, yeah. Anyway, hour and a half, that's not bad. Not too shabby. So, uh, yep, make sure to make uh, comments on iTunes or the blog. Give us a rate, uh, ask questions, uh, and we will try to answer them next time. Thanks for tuning in. All right, guys. See you. All right, buddy. Hey, I'll let you get to that bed. Legit. I think that was good. Yeah, nailed it. <laughs> All right, so next one is going to be what topic? Do you know yet? Did you say hypertension, or are we going to do rhabdo, or what? Well, the, my Facebook Live crew is currently here. So, guys, were they listening to that whole thing? No, I just put it like a little, like a just a little blurb. Still, oh, okay. And I may delete it, or I may not. Um, yeah. I think we're gonna do high blood pressure. Let's do it. All right. Cool. High blood pressure. Next topic. But make sure to check into the blog on Wednesday, where you'll hear from Dr. Baraki and I. Ninety minutes. <sighs> Snap. DJ Austin Baraki. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> see you guys. All right, man. All right. I'll see you later. See you, buddy.